All right, well, we are ready to get started a little late today. We are starting on the fake page 44. There's uh, 44 and 45. The truth, well, okay, so this 44 is actually 45. This 45 is actually 46. But if you find one that looks like this, where it's got a box in the middle, you have the two sheets that you need for today. This one says 45 at the top, but it's actually 46. Okay, so if you need that, I can get that to you. And you can adjust the page numbers accordingly so that everything is nice and neat and perfect. Okay, who else needs some? Yep, okay, hopefully we have enough. Your name? Alex, good to meet you. You got it? Okay, Okay. there you go. Rebecca, right? Very good. Renee, is that right? (laughs) There you go. Anybody else? A fake 44? Nope. Nope, it's the next one. It is the next one. Anybody else? That is that one. Yeah, and we're starting on the page before that. All right, so you should have in your notes two page 44s. The second 44 is actually 45. And that's where we will start. We are starting with the one that looks like this. Oh, okay. Well, we won't get there today. So you'll, you should be covered for today. This page that looks like this, that has Israel's history and a whole long list of Old Testament passages, that's where we're going to be today and next week probably. I don't think we'll make it too awful far today. All right? Woo! Happy New Year almost. Hope everybody had a uh, Merry Christmas and uh, got some good rest. I had a staycation and that was very nice. I tell you what, one week at home doing nothing is like, Two weeks elsewhere, just time goes really slow. And I think that was good. It was good for me. I don't know if it was good for my family. But uh, it, was, it was great. <clears throat> and I've been doing what I can to keep big sugar in business, eating a lot of candy. But I, I did have a multivitamin yesterday. So, <laughs> covered. I'm covered. So, that's my health plan is uh, take my one-a-day men's about once every two weeks. So, that's how that works. But uh, anyway, so glad you guys are here. We've got a lot of fun things going on today uh, in our service. Um, You're going to be introduced to a new missionary that we're supporting as a church. Uh, We're um, going to be handing out some gifts and doing some other stuff, so it's going to be a good day. All right? Let's pray together and then get started. Father, we thank you so much for all the good things you've given us, including your word. We ask that today as we look into your word, you'd give us Great wisdom and insight, give us good unity here, that we would uh, just honor you from the heart and be drawn closer to you because of the time we spend together in the Bible. God, thank you so much for who you are, for what you've done, what you are doing, and what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. We are starting a new section today. We finished the section on salvation that lasted, I don't know, probably three months or so. That was the sixth or the seventh section, sorry, in our study of Christian theology. We are now coming up into section eight here today, the nature of the church or ecclesiology. We'll talk about why it's called ecclesiology here in just a moment. But this is lesson one of a new section talking about defining entities. It is very important that we study the ecclesia of God, the church. This is where we get the word ecclesiology. Why would you call the study of the church ecclesiology instead of churchiology? Well, it's because a lot of these words get borrowed from Greek, and this is one of those cases. So, ecclesia is the Greek word for the church. 
But I already have up here for you the basic breakdown of how this works in the Greek, where it's a compound word, essentially, where there's a, a preposition paired with uh, a noun. So the preposition is the first part here, ek, meaning to come up out of, and the last part being derived from the word for being called. So the word literally means the called out ones. Okay, but it can be translated assembly, it can be translated congregation, or church in your Bible. Most frequently, it's going to be translated church. Okay? But that's what the word literally means, or the called out ones. What is the church called out from, would you say? Yeah, that's it. Called out from the world. Okay? Uh, that's a very important theme for the church through the New Testament. Before we understand all the intricate details of the church, we must understand God's first ecclesia, Israel. Are we the same? Are we different? That's where we're going to uh, start today, and again, we'll be there a good amount of time next week, too. The question, of course, is, the, is Israel the church of the Old Testament? Is the church the Israel of the New Testament? These are theological questions that get wrestled with quite a bit. Uh, are they the same? Are they different? Are they the same with some differences? Okay, well, let me go ahead and show you my hand in this church's hand. No, Israel and the church are distinct. They're not the same thing. The church is not Israel of the New Testament, and Israel is not the church of the Old Testament. The Bible clearly distinguishes between the two. And if we all go to 1 Corinthians 10 together, we can see this in a very basic way. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32. We can see the divisions that are made by an apostle of Jesus Christ here in the New Testament, writing Scripture. He could have worded this differently, but let's look at the way he worded this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And let's look at uh, 31 and 32 together. Who can read those two verses? 1 Corinthians 10, 31 and 32. Dax, go ahead. All right. So look at this three, basic threefold distinction here in verse 32. You've got, of course, the church of God. Uh, that is separate from everybody, everything else in the world. The church that Jesus Christ has been building for now almost 2,000 years uh, that is separate from the world. But when we consider the rest of the world population, look at the two categories Paul gives. Outside the church, you've got Jews and Greeks. Israel, or the Jewish people, still exists as their own category among everyone else in the world. Okay, So that's just one of the basic things to keep in mind. And we'll look at a couple more here in just a second. You have a, a blank there on your sheet where you can write in here that the church is a new entity in God's program. The church is a new entity in God's program. It's his focus at the present time. Yet Israel continues to exist and will play a role in the future. So that first blank at the top of the fake 44, the real 45, it says the Bible clearly distinguishes between Israel and the church. And the second one is the church is a new entity in God's program. To see this, let's go to Matthew 16. It won't be up on the screen. Uh, we'll look at this in more detail probably next week. But Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 15, let's get a couple verses that, that show, or a couple passages that show that the church is a new entity. Matthew 16, verses 15 through 18. Someone read that for us. Matthew 16, 15 to 18. Jen, thank you. All right, lots to see in that passage, of course, but if you hone in on verse 18, 
In what verb tense is Jesus speaking in relation to the church? Past, present, or future? Future. Okay, you see that? Jesus is talking about his church as future. Upon this rock, I will build my church, Jesus' church. And so from Jesus' perspective there in the first century, his church is yet future. It was to be built. Another one that's really interesting in this discussion is Ephesians chapter 2, if you want to flip there also. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, where we see this same concept. Ephesians 2, Paul writing to the believers in Ephesus, the church that is there, and he's explaining what the church is in God's grand program. Ephesians is a great book to go to and to study, to see that, to see, okay, how does the church fit in to all the stuff that God's been doing in the world up to this point? Uh, Ephesians 2 really gets to the heart of this along with chapter 3, but Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. Someone want to read those three verses for us? Ephesians 2, 14 to 16? Evelyn, go ahead. Yep. Okay, so here he's talking about how do Jews and Gentiles now fit together in Christ. And look at what he says there at the end of verse 15, that the enmity has been taken down, it's been abolished, so that in himself the two, Jews and Gentiles, will be one, what kind of man? New man. Okay, so we have just a couple passages here pointing this out. You've got Jesus saying he will build his church, future tense. You've got Paul saying that the church that, that's going on, that's a new thing. That's why your blank here at the top of the page is the church is a new entity. That's a word that Paul gives us in Ephesians chapter 2. And so the church, we're an expression of, of the church that Jesus has been building all over the world. We're a new thing. This is a new thing. In the first century, this was new. It was something that Jesus said he was going to do as a future thing, and it's now happening as a new thing. So we're going to come back to this and examine, okay, well, what is the church? But first we have to understand, what was God doing before? If the church is new, what's the old? How do we figure this out? How do we understand this? How do those two entities play together in God's grand program? From MacArthur and Mayhew's Systematic Theology, Though God is working through the international church in this present age, and though the church shares in the blessings of the new covenant, in the future, God will again turn his attention to the nation of Israel in fulfillment of his promises to them. So it's not just looking back to see what Israel was up to in the Old Testament, how they came to be. It's also going to be looking to the future and see how they play a role in the future as well. Because if you haven't noticed, Israel's still around. I mean, isn't that crazy? Isn't that just so, so crazy? I mean... What other people group has had land taken away from them, has been persecuted over and over again, and after you know, thousands of years, they're just still there? It's wild. It's wild. Okay, and we'll talk more about that later on. But let's all now go to Genesis. This is that long list of uh, Old Testament passages that you have in front of you, and we'll start in Genesis chapter 12, looking at the start of Israel. We've got to understand who Israel is how they began, what God has promised to them, what God has said is going to happen. And then after we get a hold on that, we'll figure out, okay, how do we fit into this whole thing? Because the church is not the Israel of the New Testament, and the Israel is not the church of the Old Testament. So how does this work? Let's start with Genesis 12, 1 to 4. 
Someone uh, read this for us, and then I'll ask you a couple questions about it. Rex, go ahead. All right. Interesting. Well, let's start with this. Where did Abram come from? And for the answer to that, you need to read a little bit before chapter 12, just the end of chapter 11. Where did Abram come from? Okay, from the land of Canaan. Uh, if you start at verse 26, this is where we're introduced to Abram. Terah lived 75 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. There he is. Okay, and so they're out there, and uh, it says in verse 31, from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. So just, he's just like a guy. I think this is really, really important, critical, and cool. Abraham, at this point Abram, was just some dude. In fact, he was like a pagan dude, okay? Uh, so if you think of your Genesis history here, this is, of course, after the flood. It's after the Tower of Babel, the nations being dispersed, all that stuff happening. You got these people who are just roaming the earth. Abram's one of them. And God starts talking to him. Why did God start talking to Abram? Very good. The only acceptable answer to that question is because God chose him. It wasn't because God held auditions to see who would be an awesome father of a new nation. It's not because uh, God was sitting back waiting to see, okay, who's going to be a really righteous person? Who's going to decide to be the best person in the world? Oh, Abraham's, Abraham's doing well. We're going to pick him. It wasn't because of that. It was because God chose him out of his grace. It's, it's pretty amazing when you look at this and consider what is to follow. A lot of things are, are to follow here. Starting with here in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, what are the promises that Abram was given by God in these verses? Verse 2. Okay. Yeah, look at all these I will statements that God is making. When God says I will, should you sit up and pay attention? Yeah, I'd say so. All right, so God says to Abram, I'll make you a great nation, verse 2. I will bless you, verse 2. And you shall be a blessing. His name will be made great, Abram's will. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. And, end of verse 3, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, these are some mega, ultra, super duper, heavyweight promises, aren't they? I mean, these are... Massive promises, especially to what appears to the reader to be just some random guy. It could have been some guy named Dave. Then God said to Dave, <laughs> you're going to be great. But that's not what happened. He picked, of his own sovereign grace, of his own choosing, he picked Abram and said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. Pretty cool stuff. God promises to bless his lineage and to bring about worldwide blessing through it. Worldwide blessing will come through Abram's lineage. And in the middle of that, at the beginning of verse 2, there will be a great nation coming from him. So this isn't to say that all the world is going to become one nation. That's not what the promise is here. Okay? From Abram it will come a great nation among nations. And... 
through all of that, the world will be blessed. Okay? Thoughts or questions here on Genesis chapter 12 and the initial passage about Israel? Mike. Yes. Yes, that's right, because uh, nations have land, don't they? Nations have geographical territory. That's what, that's, there's, of course, people that live there, but there's also a land that exists. And that's where we're going next. If you go to the next chapter, Genesis 13, and go to the end of Genesis 13, verse 14, we see that very thing. The Lord said He's going to show Abram this land, and that's exactly what He does. And I want you to pay attention specifically to what God says to Abram about this land. So verses 14 to 17, someone want to read that for us of Genesis 13? Thank you, Stan. All right. Hone in on verse 15. After God makes Abram get up and walk the whole land, he says, all this land that you're seeing, he's giving it to you your descendants forever. Forever. So there's, if you're looking for a, a time stamp on that, there it is at the end of verse 15, forever. And think about this, like being in Abraham's position where you get up and walk the thing. This was not a, a one day, a one hour break or something like that. This was like a journey he had to go on and get up and walk and view the land. God's getting pretty physical, pretty tangible here, isn't he? And saying, that specific land I will give to you and your descendants forever. What an amazing promise. And the promises continue. Let's go over to uh, chapter 15, starting at verse 17. Genesis 15, 17. And I'll read this from 17 down through 21. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. When does forever run up? Hmm. Well, part of the challenge of descendants becoming as the dust of the earth and those descendants being disobedient and intermarrying, as we see, especially in later generations with Ezra, Nehemiah, all that, it does get difficult, doesn't it? Um, so I don't know if that's really our position to do that, is to try to figure that out. That, that's God's business, right? Yeah, God knows. God knows. Yeah, that's it. Okay, Genesis 15, verse 17, down through 21, it says, It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. These were pieces of dead animals, animals that were cut in half. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Cadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. A lot of fun words there. What you have here in verses 17, well, mainly verse 17, is after Abram makes sacrifices that God told him to make and he cuts the animals in half, is you have God himself represented by a smoking oven, a flaming torch that Abram sees, Passing through the pieces. Okay, now, 
what was, what's interesting is in that day when a covenant was made between two parties, typically you'd see both parties come together and walk together through the pieces, or they'd walk together through the ceremony, they'd be joined together in the ceremony to say, I'll uphold my end of the deal, I'll uphold my end of the deal. Kind of like a marriage, where you got the two parties that come together and they both say, I do. They both make covenants. Well, here you don't have Abram walking through the pieces. You have God only walking through the pieces. You have God only just stating unequivocally to Abraham, to your descendants, this is verse 18, to your descendants, I have given this land. Notice he doesn't say if. There's no if. So this is what we call an unconditional covenant. Unconditional covenant. God doesn't place any conditions on Abram or his descendants for this land, does he? He says, get up, walk the land. It's your descendants. He gives them this vision. God himself goes through the pieces and says, it's for sure, I'm giving your descendants this land. Never is there an if. You don't see an if. So there's a piece of land that belongs to the descendants of Abraham. Okay? Very important to see. And then one final passage before I'll open it up again. 17, chapter 17, verses 6 through 8. Genesis 17, three verses here, 6 through 8. Would someone read those three for us? Genesis 17, 6 to 8. Mike, thank you. All right, so you see here reaffirmed several of the things we've been seeing already. There's a specific land, it's in verse 8, the land of his sojournings, the land of Canaan, and it's a possession for how long, according to verse 8? Everlasting. And this is all rooted in a covenant. Again, the covenant we just looked at that was initiated when God himself went through the pieces. And this covenant is how long, according to verse 7? Everlasting. There's that same word. So you have an everlasting covenant and you have an everlasting possession. These two concepts are absolutely foundational to who Israel is. You cannot define Israel biblically without including Everlasting possession of this land, an everlasting covenant, that's an unconditional covenant from God. you got to have those two things going on. Otherwise, you're skipping over uh, what is holding up the definition of Israel from the Bible, which is Genesis, and what God said to Abram. Okay? So really important that you see these key elements in Israel's formation. But of course, at this time, there was no word Israel. God has not used the word Israel. Abram was not called Israel. Abram hasn't used the word Israel. So we have to get to that point too. How does Abram and his descendants, how does all that become Israel? We'll talk about that here in just a moment. But I'll stop here and see if you've got any thoughts or questions. April. So I didn't hear the first part of the question. Oh, the Gaza Strip. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Uh, what I'll do, if I can remember, and I should be able to remember, pen, hand. All right. Next time, I'll, I'll bring a map of the biblically defined boundaries for the land of Israel. How about that? Would that be helpful? Okay. I will do that because the Bible does get specific on this. God defined the land, and there are some people out there who made some good maps that show that. So I'll bring that. Other thoughts or questions? Okay. What promises did God give to Abram? Well, we uh, you know, just read through these. We've seen the land. We've seen the blessing of uh, other nations. We've seen the promise that a great nation will come from him. And we just read in 17 that multiple nations will come from Abram. 
What is significant about the way God instituted this covenant? This is the key thing, and if you don't have this in your notes yet, put it in your notes. Unconditional. The covenant was unconditional. That's the key. Okay? As you go through these chapters and God's promising this land, you don't get the if word. Okay? There's no if. It's unconditional. All right? So now let's bridge the gap from Abram to Israel. Okay? So we've got all this stuff going on with Abram, but you've got a couple steps here before you get to Israel as a nation. So let's look at the, how, we, how we get to Israel as a nation from Abram by looking at a couple of passages here. Genesis 26 being the first one. Genesis chapter 26, verses 3 and 4. And really, I, let's start in verse 1, okay? Genesis 26, 1 to 4, I think that would be most helpful. Would someone read that for us? Genesis 26, verses 1 through 4. It has a couple of words in there that are a little difficult, but if you say them fast and confidently, no one will question you. You will be the authority in the room. Mandy, our resident Hebrew authority. All right. Name some children of Abram for me. Who did Abram father? Oh. So here we're reading about Isaac, but let's use green. But uh, Abram was not only the father of one child. He was not the father of only one son. There's Ishmael that you can read about in Genesis 16. Ishmael. Was Ishmael a child of promise? Who was the child of promise that we were just reading about? Isaac. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and put Isaac in here. Now, why do we call Isaac the son of promise, the child of promise? Why is that? Okay, because God made a promise, didn't he? He said that you're going to bear a child, Sarah. And Sarah basically said, I don't believe you. Abram, go sleep with this lady have a child with him. So he did, and Ishmael was born. But later, Sarah did conceive just as God promised. And Isaac was that son. Now look at verse 3. With that in mind, look at verse 3. Here in Genesis 26. To Isaac, God says, to you and to your descendants, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. So right here, we need to make a distinction. God didn't reaffirm the promise to Abraham, to Ishmael, did he? He did not say to Ishmael, to you and your descendants, I'm going to confirm the oath I made to your father Abraham. He didn't say that. He said that to Isaac. And so as we think about leading to Israel as a nation, we follow the Isaac track here. We don't follow the Ishmael track, follow the Isaac track, okay? All right, now let's look again in uh, Genesis chapter 28, and let's continue on this track and see who's next in the chain here. Genesis 28, verses 14 and 15, just two verses. Doesn't look like there are any crazy words in there. Who can read that for us? Genesis 28, 14 and 15. Hayden, thank you. 
All right, so here we have a certain man having a dream, and the Lord speaking to this man in his dream. Who's the man? Jacob. And Jacob is the son of Isaac. Is Jacob the only son of Isaac? Who's another son that comes to mind? Esau. Who was born first? Ah, Esau, even though they were twins, right? Okay, good job. You got your history going. So Isaac fathered Jacob and Esau. Is Esau the child of promise or is Jacob? And why do we say that? Now, we were talking about son of promise here with Isaac. What are we talking about with Jacob? Why is Jacob considered the son of promise? Okay, and what did he say? How did God phrase that? What do you say about the older and younger? Who's serving who? Yeah, the older will serve the younger. And Romans 9 goes into great detail about this. This was all just God's sovereign choice. You've got Jacob, you've got Esau. Did God sit back and say, well, you know, going back to the same thing we talked about with Abraham, did God sit back and say, okay, which one will perform better for me? Oh, Jacob, you're performing better. I'll choose you. If we're going on performance, I don't think Jacob was going to win, right? From the beginning, Jacob was kind of like a deceiver. But Jacob was the one whom God chose. And Romans 9 says explicitly, before the children were born, before they had done any good or evil, God chose Jacob over Esau. So next link in the chain here is Jacob. He's the one through whom the nation of Israel comes. And that nation of Israel comes through his children. His 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. But as you're here in Genesis 28, look again at verses 14 and 15. Which promises are being reaffirmed here to Jacob? Okay, yeah, nation, yes. And what specifically is being pointed out? Start The very start of verse 14, what's the promise? Yeah, dust of the earth. Same phrase that God used with Abram. Your offspring, your descendants will be as the dust of the earth. Okay. Um, what about in verse 15, the middle of verse 15? Where's God going to bring them back to? Yes, to this land, it says, specifically this land. That's the land in Genesis 13 that Abram had to get up and walk around. He had to pitch his tent and walk around and look at the land. And God said, it's yours and your descendants forever. But when God said your descendants, he was talking about Isaac, Jacob, and those that came from them. He wasn't talking about the break off with Ishmael. He wasn't talking about the break off with Esau. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this gives significance in the Bible to the times when it says the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How many times do you hear that in the Bible? It comes up a lot, uh, several times. Well, that's because this is the significance. It's through that line, the nation of Israel comes. So when we talk about Israel in the Old Testament, this isn't just like a general word for people with whom God is pleased. We're talking very specifically, when we talk about Israel, this line of people. It's an ethnic line that comes through a specific line from Jacob. That's why also sometimes in the Old Testament, Israel will be referred to as the sons of Jacob. Not only are they sons of Abraham, not only are they sons of Isaac, they are sons of Jacob. See that? How he's kind of like the last one before it really branches off into 12 tribes? 
They're the sons of Jacob. Okay? Israel is made up of the sons of Jacob, the child of promise. Israel is not just Abraham's children. They are the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay? Questions, thoughts at this point? We're not taking a break on New Year's Eve, are we? We're just, just getting into the meaty stuff. Okay? Doing okay? All right. We'll keep her moving. All Israel went into slavery in Egypt for 430 years. They were without hope in a foreign land. And this, of course, was promised to them. Uh, it's just amazing the stuff that God said is going to happen. And then, you know, who would have thought it happened? And he says, you're going to go down to Egypt. Your, your descendants are going to go down to Egypt. And there for four centuries, they're going to be enslaved. And that's what happened. So from Jacob, you get, uh, where did my red marker go? Here it is. From uh, Jacob, you get the 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes. And then these people go to Egypt. That's how the story goes, okay? So as you're thinking about the book of Genesis, there are, of course, many more details, many more events in the book of Genesis. But as it pertains to Israel as a nation, this is just the flow of things and how it goes, okay? So they go down to Egypt. They're enslaved for 400 years. And uh, then to the generation that will be leaving Egypt, you have in Deuteronomy, Moses being raised up as their leader, and this amazing uh, book that was given to them, all these amazing statements made about Israel that I want to read in a, more of a long format. Deuteronomy chapter 7, I want to read to you verses 7 through 26. As we consider their formation, basically from a nobody, Abram, he was in Ur of the Chaldeans, going to the land of Canaan. He was a nobody. He was a pagan. As we consider, they started there. They go down to this point of uh, being in Egypt, the 12 sons of Jacob with their children. It's like an incubator. They grow, they grow, they grow in Egypt as slaves. Then God redeems them. It's just an amazing story. And I, I think if you have that full scope in your mind, it gives a lot of weight to these words. Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting with verse 7. Moses speaking to the people of Israel. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery." from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments, but repays those who hate Him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with Him who hates Him, and He will repay Him to His face." Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. Verse 12, Then it shall come about, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you His covenant and His loving kindness which He swore to your forefathers. He will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain, and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your herd, and the young of your flock, and the land which he swore to your fathers to give you. 
You shall be blessed above all peoples. There will be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle. The Lord will remove from you all sickness, and he will not put on you any of the harmful diseases of Egypt which you have known, but he will lay them on all who hate you. You shall consume all the peoples whom the Lord your God will deliver to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. If you should say in your heart, These nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. You shall well remember that what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and all Egypt, the great trials which your eyes saw, and the signs and the wonders and the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet against them until those who are left and hide themselves from you perish. You shall not dread them. For the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You will not be able to put an end to them quickly, for the wild beasts would grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will deliver them before you and will throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. He will deliver their kings into your hands so that you will make their name perish from under heaven." No man will be able to stand before you until you have destroyed them. The graven images of their gods you are to burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, or you will be snared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not bring an abomination into your house, and like it come under the ban. You shall utterly detest it, and you shall utterly abhor it, for it is something banned. Wow. All right, so you've got uh, amazing instruction offered here to Israel, a certain generation of Israel. So now, this is going to be a little out of order, but you've got them in Egypt for 430 years. Then you have the Exodus. And with the Exodus, there's a generation that uh, was not very faithful. There was a generation who who were brought out, who saw miraculous things done. You know, the whole parting of the Red Sea and the killing the Egyptians and all that stuff. The chariots being washed away. They saw all that. And then when it was time to go to the land that God gave them, they said, ooh, those guys are bigger than I thought. And what they should have been thinking is God is bigger than we thought, right? They just saw the Exodus. But instead, they get there and they say, those are some pretty big, mean, scary dudes. Um, I, think, I think we should reconsider this whole going into the land business. We should be content with, you know, what we have. Well, because of their lack of faith, they were destined to be in the wilderness. For how long? Yeah, 40 years, okay? 40 years for that generation to die off. And the new generation that was coming up, they were the ones who were going to go take the land. And that's who Moses is talking to in Deuteronomy chapter 7. There's a new generation that now is charged with conquest. Okay? This will be led by Joshua and Caleb, who were from 
the Exodus generation, they were allowed to lead this conquest because they had faith. They believed they could dispossess their enemies. They were two of the 12 spies who believed, uh, and God allowed them to carry on. And so you have this commission that's given to this generation, go into the land, destroy your enemies, serve the Lord, He will bless you, you won't have a barren woman, you won't have a barren cow. Well, I guess you can't have a barren cow. You won't have a barren heifer, okay? Uh, go and serve, and he will bless, bless, bless. How did they do? How does the story go from there? Come on now. How did they do? Did they conquer everything and receive all the blessing of God and live happily ever after? Oh, okay, all right. No. They did okay for a while. Now, we, we did a sermon series on Joshua that covers this, this part of the story. And so you can uh, read that book, you can listen to that sermon series and find out the details there. They did okay for a while. They were having victories. There were signs of faith. And then over the course of time, unbelief crept up. Unbelief took over, and it was bad. It was bad. And so, let's see. I uh, have these things up here that I've probably already said. Yeah, okay. Israel entered the land but maintained their stubborn ways and hundreds of years of Judges commenced. So let's go to the book of Judges and see what happens next. Judges chapter 2. We'll stop with these two passages today. Judges 2 and 1 Samuel chapter 8. So Judges chapter 2 explains how well they did. Joshua was leading conquest. They were having some victories. Some good things were happening. Then Joshua died. Or he was about to die, and things were really starting to go downhill. So let's have someone read verses 1 through 5 of Judges chapter 2. Judges 2, 1 to 5. Stanley, thank you. Oh, that, that was good. Judges 2, 1 through 5. Okay. Oh, it's all good. And so you have... Uh, the angel of the Lord appearing, and who is the angel of the Lord? Yeah, the Son of God, the pre-incarnate Son of God. We talked about that in our Christology section. Okay, um, And he asked them this question, and uh, you have not obeyed me, verse 2, what is this that you have done? <sighs> oh my, is there any good answer that they could have for that? No. They are a disobedient people who have been disobedient to their God. And what you see, if you have a, um, your Bible open in front of you, just run your eyes over the rest of chapter 2. It doesn't look good, does it? It doesn't look pretty. Like, I've got a heading in my Bible above verse 11. Israel serves the Baals. Those are the false gods. Remember, this is like the people that God delivered from 400 years of slavery across the Red Sea. These are the people who saw their parents die in the wilderness and the faithfulness of God to lead them out of the wilderness after that generation died. This is the generation that has seen a good amount of victory in the conquest through Joshua's leadership. But the faithlessness remains. The, the sin remains. And so now they're doing poorly, and I've got the little stock market down to the right thing. This is what happens with Israel. You read through the book of Judges, and that is just like a depressing book. The, the key phrase in Judges is, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You see that over and over and over again in Judges. 
And it's just a very, very sad state of affairs. Very sad situation. Joshua led a mostly successful conquest by God's gracious power, but they didn't finish the job. And it didn't take long for Israel to start losing the ground they had gained. That is just the sad reality of the book of Judges. It's just like, okay, here we go, back into total disobedience. Okay, and then the last passage we'll look at uh, today, 1 Samuel chapter 8. As we continue on with Israel's history, what's going on with Israel? 1 Samuel 8, verses 4 through 9. Ah, we should probably start in verse 1. I'll read this. 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 9. Here the time of the judges is coming to an end. And it wasn't good, wasn't pretty, and another bad era is about to start. In front of verse 1 here of 1 Samuel 8, it says, Israel demands a king. Here we go. It came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his son's judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old. That's how you want people to start off the conversation, right? And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations." But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from the land from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also." Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the, proced- of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So now this, <clears throat> this is a time of transition where they go from having judges to having kings. And that's why First and Second Samuel, First uh, and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles goes through and describes the succession of kings. What was wrong with Israel's reasoning here in their request to Joshua? If you go back up in this passage and you look at uh, verses 4 and following, what was wrong with their reasoning? It's really verses 4 and 5. Why did they want a king? Ah, like all the nations. Was Israel ever meant to be like all the other nations? No. When this all started back here with Abram, the whole thing was, you're going to be set apart from all the nations, right? The whole thing was, you're going to have a great nation. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But you will be blessed when those nations bless you. You will be, or they will be cursed when they curse you. They will be blessed when they bless you. And they will be cursed when they curse you. They were going to be set apart from all the other nations. And now you have at this juncture in their history, the guys who are supposed to be the smart people, the wise people. Verse 4, the elders of Israel, they come together and say, nah, we want to be just like everybody else. And that breaks God's heart, so to speak. It grieves God when his people 
who remember the, the word that we learned at the beginning, ecclesia? What does that mean? Called out ones. When the called out ones say, we want to be just like everybody else. You're called the called out ones for crying out loud. I mean, there's just no faith in that, is there? There's no faith. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because he actually was a man of wisdom. Wasn't a good father uh, in some ways, apparently. Um, but you can't always blame that on the fathers. But uh, we'll explore that a little more when we go through the life of David in our next sermon series. How did this work out for them? Poor, right? It, it did not go well. Um, you've got now the interesting uh, beginnings with uh, Saul and David and Solomon, and off they go. <clears throat> and in the midst of these truly awful kings, God raised up many great prophets that spoke of God's judgment and plan of redemption. So, important to remember in all this is even though they had turned their backs on God, even though they were grieving God, even though they were sinful, did that change the covenant that God made all the way back here with Abram, that unconditional covenant? No, it didn't. God could have said, done with you, go die. But he remembers his covenants, doesn't he? He is faithful to his covenants, isn't he? And so that's why we get into the prophets and we start reading about, okay, what's God going to do here? And that's where we'll pick up next time. Let me pray and then we'll be dismissed. God, thank you again so much for this day, this time together. Bless us today as we seek to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.